Good day and welcome to Film Exploration with Ash Harry. We continue season 8 where we are looking at films based on novels and for today's episode we'll be looking at one of the classics, a film that changed or better yet defined the atmospheric experience of the sci-fi genre. So we shall be talking about the 1982 sci-fi thriller Blade Runner. Based on a book by Philip K. Dick and directed by none other than Ridley Scott and starring Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer, Sean Young, Daryl Hannah and Brian James. Before I start telling everyone how Ridley Scott transformed the entire science fiction genre and how this film arguably confirmed he wasn't a one-hit sensation after Alien and people took this British guy seriously, let's first take a quick look at the film's source material, the book it was based on. In fact, the short story it was based on, Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Philip K. Dick was a fascinating man, a troubled and lost soul, but in his brief life produced some of the best short stories in history. Some may say the man is quite possibly one of the leading authors of the science fiction genre. A man that married five times, three children of three different women, a man who experimented with drugs that got the better of him, however, recovered in his later life to where he found God and claimed to have been visited by extraterrestrial slash godlike figures in the later part of his life. A man that is considered one of the best sci-fi writers to ever live, who is the creative genius behind none other than this film, Blade Runner. He saw 20 minutes of the movie, calling it better than he ever thought it would be. He also had the worst agent in the world, meaning he never made money from his short stories and never saw the royalties for his work for some ungodly reason. Some say the reason he wrote so many short stories was because he was getting advances for every short story he wrote and so needed the money to keep on living his lifestyle. He was never really wealthy for most of his life, which is an incredible thing to say since his name has a legacy of its own. It wasn't until he sold the rights for Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, in which that short story would later be adapted to a film called Blade Runner, where this would be his first successful work in terms of financial stability. You see, Philip K. Dick first came up with this idea for this novel coup, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, in 1962, when researching The Man in the High Castle, which deals with a Nazi conquering the planet in the 1940s. It's basically if the Nazis won World War II, what would happen to the world? They made a series about this, and they've recently made it on Amazon Prime. It's actually really good. I think it's on season three at the moment. So Philip K. Dick had been granted access to archived World War II Gestapo documents in the University of California at Berkeley and had come across diaries written by SS men stationed in Poland, which he found most unreadable in their casual cruelty and their lack of human empathy. One sentence in particular troubled him. We are kept awake at night by the cries of starving children. Dick was so horrified by this sentence that he reasoned there was obviously something wrong with the men who wrote it. This led him to hypothesise that Nazis in general were a defective group mind, a mind so emotionally flawed that the word human could not be applied to them. Their lack of empathy was so pronounced that Dick reasoned they couldn't be referred to as human beings, even though their outward appearance seemed to indicate that they were human. The novel basically sprang from this. However, not all realistic stories have a happy ending. Unfortunately, before the film was finished, he suffered a heart attack and died. His work to date is said to have brought in over one billion in revenue now, a bittersweet story of a talented, lost genius. The slightly peculiar author was quoted in an interview in saying, if you want to get well, you're going to have to stop trying to help people. A man who suffered from serious mental illness reflects in some, in fact, most of his short stories. A man that would say that, you know, you could say had schizophrenia after his detailed encounters with gods or people from another world. 
The man was a very thematic based with intense use of metaphysical and philosophical subjects in all of his stories. Blade Runner being just one of many examples, as the title suggests in the movie title, a lot of Philip K. Dick's stories includes the main protagonist running away or being chased or in fact chasing and running towards something or usually as a fugitive of some sort. Blade Runner being one, Minority Report being another one, Total Recall and Imposter, all short stories made later into movies being other examples of this running theme or chasing man. I actually read that Minority Report is meant to be a direct sequel to Total Recall in the short stories and they tried to follow up with, uh, I think they tried to follow up after the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie but they decided to rewrite the entire movie and remove the elements of the Martian atmosphere and even the characters and Spielberg ended remaking this film entirely different. And of course it works better in my opinion, but I haven't seen the original version, I've only seen the version that I've seen, and of course I'm going to attach to that. So it's not his best, but a good watch and an interesting idea. But Blade Runner, Ridley Scott's third film after The Duelist and Alien. He calls Blade Runner his most personal and most favourite film of his own, and many would argue with that statement of it being their favourite of their own, an argument however could be made with Gladiator or Alien. Ridley, along with David Webb, who wrote the screenplay for this movie, hadn't read the original source novel, even though Philip K. Dick saw 20 minutes of it and said they caught it perfectly. The original screenwriter had read it, Hampton Fancher, and Ridley Scott even told David not to bother reading the book because the original screenplay already captured the correct atmosphere. Now, as brilliant as Ridley Scott is, he doesn't entertain the generic things that auteurs swear by, like reading the source material or having an actor lose weight like Matt Damon not losing weight for The Martian. Simply just goes, nah, we don't have time for that. We can CGI it. Or nah, we've got the general gist of the atmosphere with the original draft. We don't need to read that book. There is a nonchalant genius to his trade, and that's why I love Ridley Scott. The man is clearly one of the best visionaries of our time, and it shows he doesn't need to be or act pretentious. So, Blade Runner came out in 1982, and as much as a classic as this film is, it got crushed at the box office. It's basically all due to timing, because I think within months, The Thing came out, the Kurt Russell, John Carpenter uh, collaboration, and also Steven Spielberg's E.T. was also released. So not many people paid much attention to Blade Runner in the midst of E.T. and The Thing. However, as time has done its thing, it's now almost, what, 40 years later? Blade Runner has actually aged like a fine wine, aging gracefully, and some would argue that Blade Runner holds the biggest legacy out of the three, but that is just simply my opinion. Blade Runner is ranked 166 in the top 250 films on IMDb, nominated for two Oscars for visual effects and art direction. The film cost $28 million to do, which was quite big for a relatively new director. It did make its money back, but the studio expected more. I think it made $48 million globally. Barely made its money back in America alone, actually. Even though Robert Ebert gave the movie a mixed to negative review on its initial release, he later included it on his great movie list. Ridley Scott had a tough time on this, constantly battling with the studio, explaining every artistic choice he made. He even, you know, he was even fired from the project during production about two or three times. It was just a nightmare of a time. However, something beautiful did come out of it. I think every scene that is outside, it's raining, and it just comes down to this environment that Ridley Scott is trying to paint for us. And he does this in all of his movies. The attention to the background detail is next to perfect. I mean... Harrison Ford also, I mean, he equally didn't have a good time either. Apparently, they kept changing the endings or the script. 
And one clear example was the last scene. He is soaked on the roof, hanging off things. Didn't look fun, but enjoyable to the neutral viewer. But he was having the worst time ever. Apparently, according to Sean Young, when asked about Harrison Ford, he said he didn't smile once during the making of this film. He simply didn't have a good time. He must have been reluctant to star in a sequel for sure, although it's not raining much in a sequel, nor is he hanging off things as well. Harrison Ford had just come off from working with uh, Steven Spielberg, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think it was a couple of months before filming, and saw how big it was becoming, so it was a complete juxtaposition working on this film with Ridley on a completely different style of filmmaking. There was also a massive side conversation about Deckard wearing a hat in this movie that was sort of similar to the fedora he wore in Indiana Jones, but they didn't go along with that in the end. I think Harrison Ford went out and got the most basic haircut just to make sure he wouldn't wear a hat. Ridley Scott, I mean, didn't care what his hair was, to be honest. Another laid-back approach to Ridley, which ironically makes him one of the best directors out there, I think. In fact, that was just one of many things that Ridley and Harrison would disagree on or care about. Harrison Ford didn't like the voiceovers at all. Instead that, he said he just wanted them there because it, you know, he didn't, he didn't believe it was relevant, not for every scene he was in. The opening scene, in fact, was going to be a voiceover, but that got changed uh, very uh, early on, actually. Harrison Ford, you see, had just worked with Steven Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola, and they always gave him some good input on how to play his characters. However, he said that Ridley Scott was just interested in how the set was looking. Ridley Scott said that Harrison was a professional actor who didn't need any input at all, but I guess even the best actors need their hands held by directors at the time. And they had one final big blow, which is the big debate of this film, and that is, is Deckard a replicant? There was a verbal agreement before they shot this movie that he wasn't a replicant, and Harrison Ford felt strongly about this movie. He said if he was, it would just undermine the human aspect of his journey in this film and how he chose to play it. However, when Ridley Scott shot the film, he shot it in a way where it may be implied that he in fact could be a replica, and of course Harrison Ford wasn't happy about this when he saw the final cut. This is the film's big question. Is our main character a replicant? It joins the other big cinematic questions like does the totem stop spinning in Inception? What's in the briefcase amongst many other searching questions we desperately want answers to? So to give some content, Blade Runner is set in 2019 in Los Angeles, even though in the book it's set in 1992, and I don't think it's in Los Angeles in the book. I can't remember where it is. I think it's Chicago. But anyways, Ridley Scott changed a few things from the book. I don't think he even read the book, to be honest. I think he trusted on what his screenplay or screenwriter said to him. It's set in this futuristic world where once existed this not-too-distant past replicas who are you know who are androids that look human and once they served their purpose in the past they were going to be terminated however many escaped and these skin jobs as they call them in the movie uh, started a mini revolution and naturally wanted to live and survive enter 2019 and we have Deckard who is a retired Blade Runner who specializes in hunting down the remaining replicas left on earth with unique questionnaires and instinct to determine who is human and who is a replica and he is hired by Thai Rail Corporation to hunt the last suspected replica on the loose I say last the latest Although replicants are supposed to be androids pretended to be human beings, replicant bodies are never seen from the inside, so no inner mechanisms and circuits are ever shown. The only clue about their artificiality can be seen when Roy Botti and Ian Kowalski meet Hannibal Chu in the shop where artificial eyes for replicas are created, but that's about it. 
This is probably a conscious decision by the director to further emphasize that we humanize every every little thing, even the replicants. And the second we see the true colors, the inside, if you will, do we start doubting their intentions and our prejudice towards them and also to keep a sense of mystery to everyone else, including Deckard? So I thought it was a quite interesting choice by Ridley not to show an actual replicant who was living and then the inside of them showing just wires and fuses and batteries. I thought that was quite a clever way of doing things. It's a film that clearly raises themes of power, existence and survival, which, like I said before, are reoccurring themes in Philip K. Dick's novels and, of course, the film Toys with the idea that the Blade Runner we are following the entire time may be, in fact, a replicant himself. Blade Runner was a glib view of the future in which corporations wreck untold damage to the lives of civilians. This reoccurring theme is reflected in its constant rain, which is intended to illustrate the effects of LA's dangerously high levels of pollution. But the big question, whether he is or not, is left entirely up to you. However, the answer may reveal itself in Blade Runner 2049, the sequel that came out not so long ago. Let's just put it this way. You do get answers in the sequel. The film, I believe, was directed by Denis Villeneuve, ended up directing the sequel a couple of years ago, and it reprises the role of Harrison Ford in this movie, but Ryan Gosling takes the centre stage as the lead role. It's a fantastic sequel, and the atmospheric tension in this movie first creates something that I've never seen before. It actually betters what Ridley did in 1982. Um, and that goes really... I mean, the expectations to you know make a sequel to a classic is always frowned upon, but this one was particularly good. I mean, this guy did Sicario, Arrival, Enemy. I mean, this, and he's doing the new Dune movie. So this guy does have um, a way of making great movies. And speaking of directors, many directors have cited Blade Runner as one of the reasons into getting into the business in the first place, more specifically into directing. Directors such as Christopher Nolan, Ridley Scott's younger brother Tony Scott, and Frank Darabont, who went on to direct The Shawshank Redemption. Ridley Scott said once he watched a few sci-fi films before he started making Alien and even Blade Runner, and he said no real sci-fi films ever captured the atmosphere he thought about doing, and it's the main reason why he obsessed over the style and background of Blade Runner because he believed he had never seen it before in cinema. He also said that because the film didn't do as well as it should have, it should, I mean, the expectations of what his style was, he said the film didn't do as greatly as he thought it would in 1982. And then he said 12 years later when MTV was becoming a really big thing at the turn of the 90s, he realised that a lot of videos were based on a style of Blade Runner, kind of this bleak, kind of electro sort of cosmic world and he thanks mtv for the surge of people revisiting blade runner in the 90s this revival of this modern classic this film that is now considered one of the best sci-fi films ever made i mean because of that he honestly believes that's the reason why blade runner is now such a cult classic and a dream film for cinephiles at the same time I mean, Denis, uh, the French director who directed the sequel, was also inspired by the original film. And like I said before, I mean, he directed Sicario, Arrival, Prisoners with Hugh Jackman, so he's no stranger to brilliant tension throughout the movies. Ridley was planning a sequel a few times for Blade Runner, but never got round to it. The scripts existed various times for it, and they never just amounted to anything, and they got released as novels instead, actually. Blade Runner has this sort of cyberpunk genre to it where it operates in a world that has now existed in today's world but still completely futuristic to the viewers of today's world. The bleak outlook on the future further emphasises the Blade Runner as a fight for identity and knowing your place in this world and the irony it may hold considering what you believe as well. 
I guess it is when it comes down to it, I guess. And if you strip everything away, the theme really is what is it that you believe? But I mean, that's Blade Runner in a nutshell to me. And that's why I think Philip K. Dick is one of the most underrated, probably not underrated anymore, but he is someone that is looked over. But I believe if you look him up, have a look at the short stories he's written, he was he was very much ahead of his time. And um, yeah, the thematic themes or the messages, the metaphors from his stories are just ridiculous. And from just from that alone, intentional or not, but it's very clear that it is intentional. I mean, you can tell the man was a genius and I don't think he ever exploited it. And he died way too young because God knows what stories he would have come up with now. But yeah, the man was seriously a genius. And I think also Ridley Scott, coming out of a shell. I mean, he did Alien and everyone thought it was a one-hit wonder and then he did this film. People thought, oh, wait, Blade Runner wasn't that great. And then, you know, 10, 12 years later, oh, wait, hold on. Blade Runner is actually a fantastic film. This film is lasting um, its time. And that's what we sort of look out here for. You know, we look for films that can just be released and be okay and then oh wait 10 12 years later this film is fantastic i've never realized how good it is and that is a certain kind of film and there's not many films that can do that and that's the sort of films i want to do podcasts on because i find it so interesting how films can survive 40 years and still be amazing um i mean you watch a film today that's just been released on netflix or prime and you'll probably bat an eyelid on it uh eyelid on it and you know 10 20 years later it might become a massive hit like i think um Jordan Peele's movie Us um so he did Get Out and that obviously got a lot of claim and nominations at the Oscars but I honestly think his second film Us um was absolutely fantastic and I think it's one of those films like Blade Runner where I think in about 20 to 30 years people are going to look at Us and think wow okay this film has so much going on here that we didn't appreciate when we first watched it and that's what's so great about films but anyways, uh, that's all I have time for with Blade Runner. I think Ridley Scott was concrete in saying it was the first film of the style and visual ever made. And it started and inspired others to follow in his footsteps and reached out further in their creative and artistic path. But anyway, please subscribe to me on Spotify, iTunes and Google. And you can also find me on Instagram. That's Film Exploration AH or lowercase or one word. And once again, thank you again for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry.